Welcome to the new season of The Making Of, a Nat Geo podcast. I'm Chris Albert from National Geographic, and this season, we are diving deep with the artists who make our documentary films and series stand out amongst the rest. Today's episode, we are speaking with the eyes behind the lens, our incredible cinematographers. Between dodging falling ash from an active volcano and nearly losing a limb to frostbite, these cinematographers will stop at nothing to get the shot. Please welcome two of our fearless cinematographers from Life Below Zero, Sim Houtman, and from Welcome to Earth, Brendan McGinty. Welcome, Sim and Brendan. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. No, super stoked to be here. It's an honor. Obviously, National Geographic has a very storied history of visual storytelling. So to speak to two people who are responsible for continuing that amazing legacy is really awesome. I sort of want to focus our conversation today around three things, ambition, extremes, and then I want to have kind of a geeky tech conversation with you about the cameras you used and how you did certain things. So before we jump in, I just in case people aren't familiar, and Brendan, maybe I'll start with you. Can you just give us a quick snapshot of what Welcome to Earth the series is? Welcome to Earth, in part, came out of One Strange Rock, which was very much an exploration of the planet mixed with science, somewhere between natural history and science. And we had Will Smith in there as a almost sort of voiceover, tiny bits of him in the program, but it was essentially sort of voiceover. With Welcome to Earth, there was a very sort of ambitious idea that we would get Will Smith more involved, on the ground, fully immersed. And the focus shifted far more to that mix of our world, the natural history, the science, but also bringing someone who's sort of Hollywood star into that world to experience it almost as kind of every man for the viewer. And Sim, can you just give us a quick overview of Life Below Zero? Yeah, absolutely. So Life Below Zero is shot up in Alaska and it basically covers our cast members of families and people living up there, living subsistence lifestyles, living off the grid, living remote and the everyday life of living up in kind of harsh and extreme conditions. I think one of the things that connects these series, which are obviously vastly different, but also similar in certain ways, which is the ambition of the storytelling. So I was wondering if you could each just share a little bit about what was the ambition going into the storytelling and how did your craft of cinematography play into that ambition? Sim, do you want to start with Life Below Zero? I mean, to begin with, you're shooting oftentimes in as much as negative 60 degree weather, which is crazy. Yeah, absolutely. So what has been like the best part of working and I've been on this show for uh, nine seasons now. It's a labor of love, but I think one of the best things about it is we go out there and the stories just kind of naturally unfold. And it's just about being ready to film and cover our cast members as they experience Alaska and everything that it is. And Sim, the ambition is to, really immerse yourself with these characters who you must get to know very well, but obviously you also have to be the one filming them. So you have to keep a little bit of distance between you. How, how do you navigate that? Yeah. Like we go up there for weeks at a time and we could be up there in the dead winter and we're living in tents. I think the best part of the show is we are actually there 
experiencing their everyday life and their stories and telling those stories. A great example of being up there when you hear wolves howling and then all of a sudden there's a wolf pack a couple of miles away and we run out and go and try and cover that. Every day is different up there and the challenges and stuff, it just makes it interesting. And And Brendan, welcome to Earth. The filming was from the depths of the ocean to inside a volcano to a massive crevasse in Iceland. Talk us about the ambition of filming that series. Yeah, I think going into it, there was a lot of pre-production and a lot of discussion, a lot of planning, a lot of tests. And it was very, very ambitious. Essentially, we wanted to take Hollywood A-list hosts to very, very extreme environments and, and environments that would be overwhelming, that would elicit a response from him we didn't want to sort of script and sort of orchestrate these things to within inches of our lives. Obviously there was Darren Aronofsky was the sort of mind behind this. And, you know, the temptation always was something like that is to be in the drama world and think, well, we can do anything. We can orchestrate anything. We can script anything, but it wasn't like that. Our ambition was to go to these places that were both dangerous and extreme, you know, glaciers, volcanoes, bottom of the ocean, but somehow preserve hopefully a very sort of heightened cinematographic style, but also put someone who's very unused to those environments right on the front line of, say, an active volcano and sort of capture that. So it was very ambitious. The idea was conceived by makers of films, of cinema. So we wanted that ambition combined with sort of documentary aesthetic combined with, you know, some of the great sort of wonders of our world. So it was a lot of ambition and very hard to deliver. Let's talk a little bit about the extremes and maybe we could focus on two of the extremes that you were part of filming, which one was going to the bottom of the ocean and the other was going into an active volcano. As the cinematographer, how did you approach each of those extreme situations? They were incredibly different. What both of those environments gave, what you get from the natural world and from natural beauty is irreplaceable. I mean, I shoot dramas and commercials quite regularly and, you know, people kind of create these amazing sets and environments and art directors get involved, but nothing compares to being in the North Pole with perpetual daylight and the light bouncing back of the ice. So the natural world is a very, very beautiful photographic subject. So with the Bahamas and the bottom of the ocean, essentially, if I, if I think about the bottom of the ocean, we knew we were shooting at very, very low light levels, or at least we were matching to very, very low light levels. We wanted to see bioluminescence. So the technical challenge there was bioluminescence, although it's very visible once your eyes have adjusted. You know, if I just showed you some now, you know, you'd struggle to see it. So we knew our ambient level of what we were trying to see was tiny, tiny amounts of light, but very beautiful. We actually had bioluminescent creatures brought in a jar that we set and calibrated our cameras to back in London. And then we went out to Bahamas and Recky and Tessa. It was technically quite challenging. And we were shooting at sort of enormous ISOs. The latitude of the cameras was ridiculously high. So I'd say that's technically one of the most challenging shoots I've ever done, even though, you know, you perhaps don't get a sense of it in the program. But the amount of pre-production, planning, technical testing, camera rigging, I mean, I was working with an astonishing team, but that took an enormous amount of pre-production. And you went down in the submersible 
the day before, and then Will went down, and then you went back the day after. <laughs> Are you claustrophobic is the first question I want to know. <laughs> I'm not. I would count that as one of the kind of greatest experiences of my career. I'm sure some will agree. We get very, very spoiled as cinematographers. You get to experience and see things that are just beautiful that lots of people would, you know, unfortunately never have access to. I couldn't believe I went down once in the submarine, but to go twice, <laughs> it was extraordinary. Uh, it was beautiful. I felt immensely privileged to be down there and seeing a world that I've never seen before. Very, very few people have seen, you know, probably as many people have seen deep space, you know, you're going down and, and seeing things that are remarkable. Let's get geeky for a second, because I know one of the cameras you used was Canon's miniature ME20 camera. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that camera and what made that camera right for the shoot in the Bahamas? Yeah, so we looked around as to how we could shoot huge ISO. Obviously, there's fast lenses, so we were looking at shooting on fast primes. The problem with fast primes is, of course, your focus gets very, very shallow. So if you're shooting with someone and you're on a fixed rig situation, as we were for some of that, you don't know with the enthusiasm of your host, they'll be going in and out of focus. So there's only so far you can take shallow focus in that situation. So we were shooting on very fast lenses and there was months of testing how wide we could go, how sort of shallow in terms of focus to absorb more light. And then beyond that, we we're looking at, well, what is the most sensitive camera in the world? And we tested a host of cameras. We tested everything out there. The ME20 is staggering in low light. I've never seen anything like it. We were shooting it, I'd have to check my notes, but we're shooting at sort of millions of ISO, literally millions of ISO. A lot of testing sort of back in London before we went out. And we would create these environments in a studio that we knew we were going into. And the challenge beyond that is once we felt, okay, we're at a level now where we can see bioluminescence is how do you then see your host, the talent, how are you meant to see them when the camera's tuned to this world around them? So we then had to light them with the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest amount of light. I ended up lighting with, I think, a single LED with tons of diffusion in front of it. And this like sniff of light was huge. And we had to figure out distances and stuff. So it was very much... That particular shoot, not the above ground stuff, obviously that's when we're above water, we're shooting on sort of conventional tools, we've got steady cams, we've got all sorts of cameras on the go and gimbals and stuff. But the minute we went below water, we were very reliant on fixed rigs. And that's all about pre-production and preparation, particularly when you're trying to see something and capture something that to my knowledge has never really been captured before, not in that way. Sim, I want to turn to Life Below Zero and some of the extremes you face. Often you're shooting in the dead of winter. You don't have a lot of light. And it can be as cold as we said, negative 50, negative 60 degrees. How do you approach that? And what have you had to do to make your cameras and your batteries and everything function in those extremes day after day? Yeah, uh, firstly, uh, Brendan, that was badass. Uh, underwater like that is freaking cool and I want to get one of those cameras for life life below zero that sounds insane but yeah so dealing in those kind of temperatures basically you just move really quick (laughs) no Uh, it's the cameras we use just the normal the workhorse the c300 
we've been on the Mark II for a few years, and that's kind of been our main, you know, run and gun camera. But I don't know, nothing really wants to work. Like past minus 20, things just start to struggle. And for those cameras, you'll have ghosting on the LCD screens. Uh, basically, it's like almost you're shooting a super draggy shutter, and everything just like is kind of swaying until you kind of settle, and then you can kind of find your focus. And then when you shoot in low light, again, we're using primes. So then focus becomes an issue. So not to mention you're typically holding your camera above your heart. So all that blood is running from your fingers and trying to keep those warm and and stuff can be a challenge. So we've kind of adapted over the years and definitely there's certain things like we make our own foam insulators that keep batteries warm and stuff. I think flying drones when they started coming in. Talk about the insulators for a minute. What exactly is that? So basically we've used uh, just like a camping mat, like a foam mat, and we just cut out for like our uh, audio receivers and stuff because there's, honestly there's nothing worse than you're like all kind of kitted up and all of a sudden your audio batteries go down or something goes down and then you have to deglove while you're in a scene and change that out. So basically it's just a foam cover with, and we'll actually stuff hand warmers in there and that will keep batteries warmer and working better. And we'll actually do that on the back of our LCD screens to try and stop that ghosting as well. So just anything that we've kind of come to think of that will protect cameras from the cold to help us work more efficiently because, yeah, you really don't have much time. It's kind of you're out there for an hour or two at those really extreme temperatures, and then you need to kind of come back and regroup. And how do you keep yourself warm in those extreme temperatures? Honestly, my core, like Life Laser is very good. They provide all your gear. We're kitted out and you're kind of still running around. So my core is always warm. It's just the extremities, like your face, your nose. The first time I went up there years ago, uh, I got frostnip. I was holding my camera up and they kind of lost feeling, but I was like filming and like that was a really big eye opener. I was like, holy shit this can be serious and these are my money makers so I don't kind of want to lose any of them. And talk a little bit about some of the other technology you use, the GoPros, the drones, and how do you incorporate that into these shoots? Yeah, basically the goal with the GoPro is to put it anywhere a normal conventional camera can't go and to get as weird and creative as possible. And we've always had the luxury of exploring creatively how we can best cover this to tell the best possible story and that's why I've loved doing the show and I've done it for so many years because of that kind of creative and they give you the time to do that so definitely GoPros they won't work at like minus 30 minus 40 basically you may get like a 10 second shot and then you're out flying drones that one is definitely a challenge basically like iPhone screens will shut down at minus 20 if it's just out in the cold and often guys are using that as your monitor for your drone so all of a sudden you're flying blind, which can be issues. So again, I put hand warmers and foam insulation behind those screens. I've got a smart controller now and just keeping that warm because that's kind of the tricky bit. And obviously being in Alaska, like the backdrop is we're so fortunate. It's just such a majestic, beautiful place. And so it makes our job easy. So let's shift for a second from the extreme cold to the extreme heat. And Brendan, let's go back to the volcano, which I think is one of the other iconic moments from Welcome to Earth. Being there was extraordinary. It was photographically extraordinary because, you know, there was these clouds of gases, which I didn't expect. I mean, they're incredibly toxic gases and corrosive. So to touch on gear for a moment, the gases that the volcano emits, they erode metal, essentially. So we had terrific damage done to things like follow focuses and easy rigs and 
map boxes and anything that was metal just instantly rusted and turned black. Um, like instantly in 10 minutes, metal just corroded. So that was pretty scary. That was a revelation. And keeping everything going, any cables or anything just died day one. We were trying to feed signals up to, you know, everyone was watching at the top of the volcano, you know, Darren Aronofsky, the showrunner, Graham Booth, people who had eyes on monitors, but the cables were just getting eaten through by these gases. Obviously, I'm wearing very heavy mask and goggles. And the mask was very difficult to work in. It was very, very physical. We climbed a volcano and I was shooting the whole way up. I was shooting on a gimbal, very, very heavy, big run-in two rig. So by the time I get to the top, I'm struggling for breath and you've got a mask on you trying to take air in. And then there's very heavy winds blowing everywhere with silica. And essentially silica, which comes out of volcanoes, is glass. So you've got shards of glass blowing everywhere, So which is why you're wearing goggles. But even with the goggles and diligence and everything, and you've got glass inside your clothing and your neck and every open bit of your body is covered in glass shards. You know, we had medics and quite a few times during the day or the few days, I'd have to take off my goggles and have a medic remove a piece of glass out of my eye, you know, with all the caution in the world. Yeah, it, <laughs> it was the most extreme thing I've ever done. I've done some extreme things. It was absolutely bonkers. And then, of course, you rappel down to this active mouth of the volcano, and it's just throwing up rocks the size of buses flying into the air. The heat is terrific, and the sound is unbelievable, which is why we were there was the sound and the vibration. It's like being on a war zone. The ground's going and there's huge rocks flying up. And all you do every time there's a big sort of percussive moment is you look in the air because it's your... It's your duty to kind of get out the way of flying stuff. So it was thrilling and terrifying and mesmerizingly beautiful because you're looking around and when I'm pointing the camera at stuff, the gases themselves are pink and yellow and blue and you know the light that comes into the volcano was sort of cut by the edge of the volcano. And then, of course, you've got the glow of the magma as the light drops. So photographically, just beautiful. I'd never seen anything like it. And yet also tremendously dangerous, tremendously dangerous. So much so that we wrecked it on, on, on a day before we shot with Will. And uh, we chose a spot. We like, this is where we're going to shoot. This is my position. This is his position. It was my job. You know, I was the DP of the series, but I'm also very much the A camera operator. So I always want to be there with Will on his shoulder, experiencing what he experiences. So I was there in the mouth of the volcano and we'd marked a spot from the day before the recce of where we would bring Will down, where we would shoot with him. And when we turned up on the day of the shoot, there was a rock there the size of like, I mean, enormous, absolutely enormous. <laughs> it's just so we couldn't even shoot where we'd planned to shoot. We had to move and shoot somewhere else. I mean, that story is incredible. So you used 8K red cameras. In fact, I think you may be the first team to ever rappel into a live volcano with three 8K red cameras. Can you talk about those cameras? What made them right for this shoot? And did you have other cameras there as well? Yeah. So early on in sort of pre-production, I was approached by, well, I suppose a mixture of Darren and Graham Booth who were like, how can we make these sequences with our host different to the natural history sequences, the documentary sequences. And I worked on a lot of those as well. They wanted a point of differentiation visually 
with these moments where you brought Will Smith into it. So my first suggestion was, I said, well, let's shoot large format. Let's shoot sort of on a VistaVision sensor because of the optical qualities we get with that. And also, you know, let's shoot 8K. So the rest of the show is shot 5K, uh, but those bits were shot in a red monstro shooting 8K. It was one of those things that I'd only just begun to test the monstro at 8K, and I loved the results. Uh, it's obviously Panavision's DXL camera as well. It's a real sort of cinema camera. So I'd done a load of tests on it, and I thought the color space was amazing. What I loved about the resolution was, strangely, everyone imagines you've got tons of resolution, everything's sharp and super detailed. That's not the case at all. The more resolution you have, the softer a picture can actually be because you've got so much natural resolution in the picture that you don't have to lean into sort of edge enhanced sharpened pictures so we embraced a very naturalistic soft visual aesthetic but with tons of resolution which sounds like an oxymoron but hopefully isn't it also the 8k allowed us for some stabilization options when we wanted it and some reframe options when we wanted it there wasn't a lot of that used but the potential was there to do all of that you know they're fairly big cameras listening to some i think you were saying you sued on sort of C300s and stuff, sort of much smaller cameras, which I think are absolutely the right choice for the conditions you're shooting in. But we were shooting on, they're pretty proper cinema cameras, and we were shooting on sort of ingenue zooms, like quite big lenses. So you, you end up with, you know, it's a real challenge moving that amount of gear around. We would run, I think, about five of the Monstros. Three were always active. There wasn't time to change lenses because we were moving so fast. So I'd have a long... Zoom, I was shooting on zooms. Occasionally we dipped into primes, but more, almost everything was shot on ingenue zooms. Is I'd have a camera pre-built with a long zoom, camera pre-built with a wide zoom. I was primarily shooting handheld. I'd have a camera pre-built into a, a gimbal rig, so a quite big run into gimbal rig. And then we would also, we would have a number of people shooting much longer lens on red Gemini's. So we'd have Canon 50 to 1000, very sort of telescopic lenses. We'd run a couple of those. We had a lot of cameras, like a lot of cameras. We'd have drones. We'd be running a couple of drones on most of the sequences. And we had a dedicated mini camera team as well who would rig cameras in all sorts of interesting places. There was one other aspect of Welcome to Earth I wanted to ask about, which was the macro photography. The aspiration of the show was always to go to see the whole world and drones are useful for that, just to see that real big picture of the, almost the pattern in the landscape. And we did it in Iceland, for example, you're looking at a glacier and when, when seen from sort of a mile up, it looks like a fingerprint or something. You see all these striations in the ice and you see this incredible patterning. What's fascinating is if you bring it right down, you go into a macro level, the same patterns quite often begin to reveal themselves. And there's as much mystery and beauty in these tiny unseen bits of our planet as there are in the big picture stuff. So I think the kind of wonder we were trying to evoke happens both on an enormous scale that humans don't normally get to see, but also happen on a tiny scale that humans don't normally get to see. And also we'll be shooting some extreme slow motion quite often or time lapse. But say if you look at you know, we're shooting stuff at 2,000 frames per second. And again, it's moments that you'd never ordinarily see. So that was very much an emphasis of the show, is seeing things 
that your average person doesn't ordinarily see. And macro photography is part of that. There's kind of magic in the world all around us all the time. And macro sort of reveals that quite often. I think one of the extremes between the shows is you had a very big crew on Welcome to Earth. And Sim, on Life Below Zero, you guys are a three or four person team always. And you're doing a lot more than just cinematography. Can you talk about how that works with your tight teams that are out there shooting? Yeah, sure. Uh, Firstly, going back to the volcano, uh, I was curious how many drones you melted. (laughs) You know, it was interesting. (laughs) Our our drone team were absolutely world-class. We had a sort of two-man drone team on that. They had brought a number of drones because they fully anticipated destroying a drone. And they actually did everything in their power to destroy a drone. I mean, they flew the drone right down. They were filming eruptions, and as an eruption happened, they pulled up. You know, they were doing, like, crazy stuff like that. And despite their finest efforts, they never wrecked any drones. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've watched it, and that, some of those drone shots, I was like, holy cow, they are in there. So that's, that's really impressive. But yeah, going back to, yeah, we are definitely a skeleton crew up in Alaska and because we are going very remote. Yeah, you kind of, working with a shooter producer, we kind of all work together to do everything. We've got an AC and then we've got a safety person out there. It's just a team effort, really. Incredible people. And it's almost been the same people that have, once they've gone into the show, they've stuck around and it's a testament to the show and it's like a family. So we're all kind of Every time I go out there, I know everyone, and it's really awesome, which helps because you're going out and you're living in tents and freezing conditions for weeks on end. And you've been with the show since season two, right? Correct. Do you still find that things surprise you when you're out in the field? Honestly, like up in Alaska, like a a good example was uh, Denise. We were working on the sauna, and she hears her dogs barking out maybe a mile away, and she goes out to find it. We're just following as it all happens, and she comes on. Her dogs have surrounded a a moose with two baby calves. And people don't know this, but moose actually injure more people than bears in Alaska every year because they can be very, very dangerous. So it's And especially when she's got calves. So we kind of came up on that and to film that, yeah, which is challenging and exciting, but, you know, can be dangerous. So trying to get the shots and... She had to rescue her dogs, which she was able to do, thankfully, and the dogs were safe and everything. But, like, those stories are just, you come back and it's just like, I mean, where else do you get that? You just can't beat that, those kind of real stories that happen up there. So before I ask you guys a final question, is there anything else, Sim, from your craft perspective that you want to share about what it takes to make Life Below Zero? Yeah, we're a small team, but we're a solid team. And just being given the time and the creativity to kind of make it as best that we possibly can and so that is why I'm still here and while I'll continue to go back because I love the show and I love our cast and I love filming it. And Brendan so many extremes in your experience with Welcome to Earth was there one moment that stood out or that surprised you? There were so many but the glacier in Iceland so similar temperatures to what some is used to it was terrifically cold up on the glacier, as you'd imagine. Going down into that mullon, sort of big hole in the ice that had melted in by water, again, it was incredibly dangerous. I mean, if you slipped and went in there, you definitely weren't coming out. But it's that. It was in Iceland, I was made particularly aware of that juxtaposition of incredible natural beauty, but also with 
the danger and the hostility and the difficulty of working with it. So the rewards are huge. You're shooting stuff, you think, God, this looks incredible. But while I'm shooting it, I'm roped up and I'm leaning at sort of 90 degrees looking straight down because that was my chosen job was to follow them off and lean out on a rope and look straight down and sort of resisting every bit of vertigo in me as I sort of stare down this thing and you're thinking, if I fall, this is going to go really bad. And that's what makes our job like so amazing is, you know, I'm going to places that are very rare and exotic and most people will never get to go to, but also to be respectful to everyone who's allowed you to go there. You know, you've got to come back with gold. You've got to come back with something that is visually spectacular. So it's a responsibility and a privilege at the same time that you're in these amazing places, but also pressure. You've got to come back with something amazing or else, you know. So I want to end by asking both of you, you know, I think both of these series in their own way can inspire a love of planet and an appreciation for just how incredible our world is. And I'm curious if that's something that you all have thought about while making these series and has it had an impact on you personally in any way. So Sim, maybe I'll start with you. For sure. I've always loved the natural world and Alaska is definitely can be as natural as you can get and being out in those spots over the years i have actually seen sadly the effects of climate change and you following these cast members the hailstone family which have lived almost nomadic lifestyle and going back to these same areas year after year and seeing like permafrost dropping and just melting away and i think it's like firsthand accounts of what's happening out there so it's definitely inspired me in terms of i've always loved this world and this planet and I've traveled all over and like a, like Brendan mentioned like we are fortunate to go to all these amazing places but definitely feel a need to protect it because it is uh sadly it's in trouble Brendan yeah similarly to Sim you know we wouldn't be doing what we did if we didn't have a real love for the natural world and I'm incredibly fortunate I've I've filmed in the sort of four corners of the world and I've seen things that just staggering breathtaking but I think with that comes tremendous sense of responsibility. And I, I think that was in our minds, you know, we were looking at ice melting on the glaciers. We were looking at the growth of deserts in Namibia. We were looking at sort of heat. We were looking at sort of the oceans and the sort of purity of our oceans. So it was very much, if not overt, it was certainly underlying everything we did was the sense of the beauty and wonder of our planet, but also the transience, you know, the respect for it. And I think none of us were left with anything other than absolute awe and respect for the most amazing aspects of our planet and a sense of responsibility that comes with, with that knowledge. I am personally a huge fan of both of these series, but they wouldn't be anything without the power of your visual storytelling. So thank you both so much for sharing your skills with us. Thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about it today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. It's been great. Thank you so much for joining us. From National Geographic Headquarters in Washington, D.C., this has been the making of a Nat Geo podcast. I'm Chris Albert, and my guests today were cinematographers Brendan McGinty and Sim Houtman. For more information on Welcome to Earth and Life Below Zero, please visit natgeotv.com backslash FYC. That's a wrap. The Making of a Nat Geo podcast is a National Geographic production. Executive producers Chris Albert, 
Raquel Bravo, and Jennifer Driscoll. Hosted by Chris Albert. Written and produced by Dave Beezing, Angela Pirelli, and Thomas Green. Michelle Vensel, Production Coordinator. In association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands.